he brought up this good question is truth created or is it found like is all of the truth in the universe something that we keep uncovering with science and thinking and all that or is it as we do stuff we make it up hey everyone welcome to another episode of discover more where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. This week's guest is Paris Grayman, who is quite the multipotentialite. A multipotentialite is a person who has a wide range of interests and creative pursuits in life, and Paris certainly fits this description. She is the co-founder of Just Be Books, a book company created to teach mental health concepts to children, as well as the founder of Empower Creative Agency, which conducts project management for creative endeavors. She is also a passionate entrepreneurship teacher and mental health advocate. Both education and mental health are huge topics of this conversation, specifically mental health education. Paris shares about her personal mental health struggles and how that journey inspired her work with Just Be Books, which aims to create dialogues and awareness around mental health concepts. We also discuss topics such as philosophy within entrepreneurship, using guilt as a motivator, and modernizing stoicism to the present day. Please note that we discuss some sensitive topics in this episode, including suicide and suicidal ideations, so feel free to skip accordingly. So, Paris, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I'm excited to be here. Excited to talk to you today. So, one of the big things that jumped out to us was your major. We heard that you invented your own major in some kind of way, known as innovative problem solving, which we think touches on a lot of different interesting topics. So, how did that idea come into being? Is that a specific Drexel program? And why did you ultimately create this interesting creative major? I'm interested in a million different things, and I always have been. All of that led me to learn about business, and that led me to startup, the startup world. Because my, and my parents encouraged me to, if you learn about business, you know basics about stuff, you can do more things. Um, so whenever you find out what it is that you want to do, and what you should be doing, then you have a business background. So that's what led me to the East Coast for business school. And I ended up going to Drexel because they gave me a better scholarship. (laughs) And I got to go into the entrepreneurship school. So I started as an entrepreneurship major. And then while I was at Drexel, I found the custom design major. And it's where you can build your own major at Drexel. And it's under this group called IMP. It's the Individualized Major Program. And they actually have conferences every year for different schools around the country. But it's cool. It's, it's a new wave of education, uh, from my understanding, where you get to pick what you want because you didn't find it in traditional majors. So in a way, I definitely see it as an incubator for what new jobs are going to come out, for what new problems are going to be solved, perhaps, in upcoming industries. Anyways, I was able to study over, I wrote down for you guys, over nine different majors at Drexel. So that was exciting to me. I started in entrepreneurship. So I'm very fascinated with systems and process. And I got to do a lot of practical practice with um, 
on like systems. I did my senior project with Aiden Tool, who he works over at Facebook now. Also, probably an awesome person to talk to on this podcast. <laughs> He's a cool, cool guy, um, a good friend. We did our senior project on mental health for college students. And that was like a systems look at how Drexel University handles mental health with their students. Throughout the time at Drexel, I was able to work on a few different projects, one of them being Just Be, which is one of the first startups. And that is mental health children's books for ages pre-K to second grade, plus little products like the plush toys that I'm showing you on camera. Um, And then that's something I started, but Rebecca Lee joined me. And she's, again, a good friend and super smart lady and has a passion for mental health, too. Awesome. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there. I would like, because I know you mentioned the three kind of step process, and it seems like what you just alluded to, the Just Be Books, is definitely a big part of your life right now. And I think a very innovative solution to be able to present complex concepts such as mental health and emotional regulation to children just in storybook format so I was wondering if you could kind of just talk us through where that idea came from. Have you always wanted to be a children's book writer? Was this something that Drexel inspired? How the idea started, uh, I was in, I think, 11th or 12th grade, and I was quietly dealing with depression and a lot of anxiety. My family didn't talk about mental health a ton. I didn't, like, I was having little panic attacks and stuff quietly, and I was... I mean, that's a whole conversation. I was like a quiet mess, um, but also like I didn't talk about it. I learned that being bubbly was good. You can make more friends that way. I was good at school. You know, I had lots of friends and stuff, but quietly I was dealing with a lot. One of my friends, we were jokingly writing children's like bedtime stories to each other over text, really short ones. It was what was the basis of just be. It was like a little apple who was sad and lonely and rotting who fell from a tree he eventually learned how to just be it was i think at that time there wasn't even much depth to it he ended up growing into a big great tree and through this whole process he learned to just be and it was something that my sister actually probably inspired from a quote she had heard somewhere of how trees just are nature just is it doesn't try it doesn't strive it just is I really connected with at the time and I still do. I think as humans, we overthink stuff and we try to solve problems all the time. And my whole major is about solving problems and trying to make the world better and stuff, but nature just is. And so I was, I think I wrote that as a way to understand my emotions a little bit. And that's how that started. And then through college, I've always been a project person. So I always have lots of projects going on in college. I was working on this as part of a project. I was going through a really tough relationship. It was causing me to experience more anxiety and depression, more suicidal thoughts. It was towards, if you guys, I don't know if you guys are familiar with um, the narcissistic and empathetic spectrum. I'm very far on the empathy side, I think, and the um, person I was dating is closer to the other side. And it was just a really tough dynamic. So I was dealing with a lot of mental health issues um, that I had already dealt with, but they were getting stronger through ex- these experiences. And I, it helped me pick Just Be to focus on. And it was already a project I was slowly chugging along. I had two different illustrators. The first one was Luigi Meniz. He's killer. He's awesome. He's currently still doing illustrations, but he told me he didn't want to 
dive into kids books you know so um his his artwork actually let me show you it's really cool this is one of the first prototypes and this is all luigi's artwork it's beautifully done nice that's incredible um, so he's he's an awesome artist, and he's doing more animation stuff. He does more, like, fantasy work. and That's how I ended up working with um, Rebecca, because she was a history for at college to teach that later on. I wrote the original story, but Rebecca helped me make it into, like, twice the length. Like, the whole book is with social-emotional learning standards in PA, in Pennsylvania. So social-emotional learning is, like, school's version of mental health social emotional learning and so all of it like it could be taught in classrooms because um, Rebecca helped make sure it aligned to the standards for social emotional learning she also we made it more active in terms of making it more focused on coping skills so in the new version of it the one that's out in the world it's uh Albert Apple the main character he goes through three different coping skills the first two don't work and the third one works and that's how he ends up learning to just be and turn into a tree I think it'd be fun. I can send you guys the first draft and the final draft. It's fun to see in terms of prototyping process. But um, anyways, that all that to say, um, Rebecca's the co-writer of this one. So because I think she she edited it with me so much that it changed into a new book. So she's the um, co-author and the illustrator on the book and um, unofficial business partner. I say that because she in all the senses she is, but we just haven't gotten to the point where we're making enough to file taxes together. So <laughs> I know you guys know that with the startup business world. So but we both still have so much passion for mental health and um, we have plans to make it a six book series to talk about topics the first one's on sadness the second one is almost done this is all rebecca's work she wrote it she um illustrated it. she's almost done with it it's on anxiety we also want to talk about grief she, she lost her mom when she was 15 years old to cancer and she's just like rebecca's awesome um, and she's dealt with a lot so when i was growing up the consequences of me talking about my suicidal thoughts that i didn't understand was that it i either don't talk about it or I talk about it and I'm afraid of the consequences. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not to the point, I never was to the point where I needed to be hospitalized, thankfully. I know some people are, but I was never to that point, but there was no gray area. My goal with Just Be Books, and Rebecca would probably echo this too, is to open up the conversation about mental health to add gray area so that things can get healed and things can get talked about. So that kids like me who are dealing with a lot of depression, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, who didn't need really strict consequences, just were able to talk about it. That's some stuff about my experience with Just Be. <laughs> Thanks for the answers. I think there is a lot there to unpack. And Just Be Books is only one of your many entrepreneurship projects that you're currently embarked on. So, uh, But before we continue, the theme that I do see from your uh, stories about how Just Be Books came to be and why you founded it is to be proactive, is to preventive with the mental health. And for someone as you are who've dealt with suicidal ideations and depressions uh, throughout your life. Uh, but yeah, the common theme that I do see is uh, front-loading. Uh, I could see you are someone who like to front-load a lot of things in the beginning because we've talked with numerous entrepreneurs and a lot of people who've had successful startups and many of them start in a very specialized place. And more often than not, many of them are software engineers or engineers who have a technical specialized skill sets. Then they delve into a more generalist approach to learn about HR, to learn about marketing, to learn about fundraising uh, throughout their entrepreneurship journey. But you, 
even before you became an entrepreneur, even before you graduated from college, you were very intentional. To me, it sounds like to uh, pivot from an entrepreneurship major into this morphed all of the above encompassing major that comprises of nine plus components, such as psychology, neuropsychology, philosophy, sociology, and so on. So it, to me, it sounds like you've always been very intentional and you wanted to front load a lot of the learning process in college so that when you do become an entrepreneur post-college, you already have not all, but many of the skill sets that's required to quote unquote succeed as an entrepreneur. Uh, I think that's uh, talks about who you are as a person, right? Because even this project as Just Be Books, you, you're choosing to be very proactive. You're, you want to front load the next youth with mental health aspects to fill in the colors of gray area, as you called it. Because if you think about the word spectrum, right? Spectrum literally means it comprises many shades of colors. And as you talked about, if it's only black and white, it's only, oh, if you commit suicide, here's the consequences. Or, you know, major depressions, here's the consequences. That's very black and very white. And without the gradations or the colors that's in between, there is no spectrum. It's just black and white. So I could very well see the effort you're trying to put into to make that gradation happen, to make that spectrum happen, so that you're more proactive in terms of the next youth. And that's something I wrote about in my personal essay for my grad school, because I'm going back for my master's, is that I don't think holistic health could be achieved on a systematic level as of yet in the United States, because the healthcare system and many of the institutions in the U.S., is predicated on a very reactive framework. And if you look at criminal law, right, it's very reactive. Mental health is very reactive. Uh, some people with the understanding that you do, you may use it as like a proactive measurements. Like maybe before you, you can feel yourself being sunken into that dark place, you want to talk to your therapist so that that you know, dark place isn't as prevalent or as dark as it could be, but that's for the selective few. But for, for the most, I think, general public, people use mental health or therapy as a reactive measures. And if you look at the emergency medicine or the healthcare system is entirely reactive. Um, so in, in my essay, I talked about, I'm interested in achieving holistic health through the lens and the pathway of mental health. But part of me is very cynical that holistic health cannot be achieved yet because the whole system is reactive. And I think there's a shift happening slowly on every level of the society or the government but I think we're still a little bit a bit far away from that. In terms of your journey, I could see you want to achieve the proactivity, preventive uh, pathway through your books, writing about Just Be Books, uh, from your journey in terms of creating this unique uh, pathway of a major that's comprised of nine different majors components. That's also your attempt. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's also your attempt at trying to achieve that front-loading, proactive a face so that uh, when you do become entrepreneur, you don't have to divert too much of energy trying to pick up different skill sets. I do. I am interested in terms of the philosophy, I guess, field that you chose. So uh, do you know Peter Thiel? I talk about him a lot in the podcast. Uh, many people don't know, but he studied philosophy at Stanford uh, before he went on to, I think, Stanford Law or Harvard Law to become a lawyer before he became um, the billionaire investor that we know now. But Peter Thiel actually talks a lot about the importance of philosophy and a lot of really prominent startup founders in Silicon Valley, they started philosophy in college because just like college is the hub of learning, obviously there's other benefits to it, but I, I view college as the hub of learning 
And I think philosophy is also the hub of human behavior. It's a lot of how ethics and a lot of human behaviors manifest. And I think philosophy is a study of that, along with anthropology, I think. But yeah, with that being said, I'm particularly interested in why, um, why you chose philosophy out of... Because college, like Drexel, has hundreds of majors, right? And obviously, nine is a lot. You chose nine numbers. But even like sociology makes sense. He talks about systematic approach. You know, psychology makes sense. It's, it's individual approach. But philosophy is such a niche, specialized, and broad subject. And to me, you kept referring to the word ethics throughout your conversations. Um, so I can tell that's something you're very interested in. So I like to deep into a little bit about the philosophical discussions in terms of why philosophy as part of the nine into your very entrepreneurship solution driven because philosophy doesn't really have solutions embedded in them inherently so so interesting well you brought up so many things um some of the things that i'll I'll verbally bullet point for us to talk about ux of healthcare i think is a shit show (laughs) i think it's it's so difficult like me as a a new adult i should say i'm in my like early mid-20s figuring out insurance for myself to even get mental health help in college and outside of college was really difficult and I'm smart and like you guys are really smart and like the most of populations really smart and UX should make everything easy the healthcare system so hard to deal with for anybody like no matter what and it should be especially people who do have anxiety who need mental health help it is not built for people who need mental health help I got I kept calling the doctors like and they started knowing me they were like Paris, it sounds like you're dealing with anxiety right now. Because I'd be like, this medicine's making my heart have palpitations. They're like, it sounds like anxiety. You know, so it's like, for people who I don't think it's currently uh, optimized for the user. Okay, philosophy. There are so many other things, but this is the one. I forgot everything else. Okay, philosophy. The teacher I had, I don't remember his name, but he was really cool. He brought up a couple different conversations that we had to address throughout our time in his class, he brought up this good question. Is truth created or is it found? Like, is all of the truth in the universe something that we keep uncovering with science and thinking and all that? Or is it as we do stuff, we make it up? There's also, I found throughout Drexel, she's one of my favorite humans ever. Um, I've worked with her as a mentee, for a project, um, a teacher, she's one of my, she was one of my teachers and as a boss, I worked for her on a research project for women in transitional housing. She brought up in her class, I took a couple master's level classes with her in design research. In design research, there's a couple different topics of how truth is found in social sciences. And I don't remember what that jargon is, but they bring up the same kinds of ideas. Is our worldview something we create or is it something that is created for us? And that's something I find interesting. Since I was a kid in high school, I've had a lot of my suicidal thoughts and anxiety and depression is existential based. Like I get so bogged down with the idea of that I have to be here. And like, I've been doing this grateful, like I try to journal most every days and stuff. And I'm like, what are my three things I'm grateful for today? Like I do that kind of stuff as a coping skill. I recognized the other day, I was like, I think I'm struggling right now. And maybe I always have with, the basic thing that I'm grateful that I'm here. But I'm grateful for the second derivative that I'm here. I'm grateful that I have a lovely relationship. I'm grateful that I have a nice home right now that's comfortable. I have all my necessities met. I have an awesome family, right? Like I'm grateful for this secondary stuff. But I think I'm still struggling and I might have always struggled with the first thing that I'm here. I think I'm annoyed with it. And I think there's that's something that 
it doesn't feel like it aligns with my core person because I what I'd like to be is this like loving human who's like you know everything's awesome humanity yeah ethics yeah <laughs> but I think I'm I think I'm annoyed that I'm here in in a in a way and that humanity is so hard like I'm annoyed that just living is hard for me sometimes with mental health difficulties with that I overthink things that I get so guilty um for nothing you know like for no good reason I just feel shitty sometimes and depressed and menstrual cycles make your hormones weird and make like me specifically get really depressed around my menstrual cycle like I get really extra suicide <laughs> suicidal <laughs> so like I'm annoyed that the human existence is hard <laughs> um and when I talk to some of my friends who are who are more spiritual and dig into that stuff too and who maybe lean towards like reincarnation beliefs and all those kind of spiritual things people have said in that realm they might say you're an old soul who's been floating around the ethers for a long time and you came here for a reason to get something done um but you're annoyed that you have to be in your physical body you're not used to being in physical body and you see your goal and you want to just get to your goal but the human body and earth is making you have to like get through it slower it's dense humanity is dense like physical stuff is dense and i'm like for audio members i'm hitting my skin <laughs> humanity is dense human bodies are dense so um one of my friends alexa she had said you know in that kind of realm you want to just breeze through your physical body because you're used to being able to just do that but you to actually get stuff done in this lifetime in these bodies you have to learn to step into your body and get stuff done with your body so it's um, that's some of the mental health struggles and the disassociation and like having to figure out coping skills, schedules of like your, um, morning routines, all that stuff. It's like this kind of personality is like, Oh, why do I have to have a morning routine? Like, you know, like I just want to get my projects done. I just want to do stuff. I want to meet people and get things done and journal and make music and do all these things, but you're annoyed with it. So I think I have a underlying challenge and frustration with existentialness and humanity of like my humanity me having to be human i think i've always had that that brings me depression anxiety suicidal thoughts because i'm over this shit sometimes <laughs> but it's also like i definitely have moments where i'm like oh my god humans and humanity all of us all of this is so beautiful oh my god it's so rich and so colorful and then i have moments where it's like fuck this shit it's not worth it this is so much work <laughs> so I think that's that's a layer of stuff why I'm interested in philosophy. I also, growing up, I saw a YouTube video about Stoicism, and I mm. thought that was interesting, like the Stoics. I remember learning on this YouTube video about how Stoics are really okay with suicide because they see that as a very viable option of, like, if things get hard, that's always an option. And I think that's, um, mm. I think that's kind of fascinating because I, I kind of vibe with that on an internal sense. But I also, if you ask me that about other people, I'd be like, oh, that sucks. Let's see if we can help them to be happier and all that kind of stuff. But I get it. Like, I, I vibe with it internally. And then also, like, I've researched a lot about why we think, why humanity thinks suicide is, is weird and why we have trouble with it as a society. And I liked in high school, I had to read Welcome to the Monkey House, if you guys have read that one. It's like a, a series of short stories by... Um, Oh, I can't remember his name, some famous writer guy. One of those short stories, it was talking about how there's this, um, it was a sci-fi, you know, like dystopian type series. And it was talking about how suicide was really 
accepted in there you just go and get like a shot if you're done with it it's like a phone booth or something you just go in and and it's assisted suicide basically and side note are you guys okay if i talk about this is it comfortable yeah Yeah, totally i know i've made like i'm so comfortable with it other people are not and i forget sometimes no it's uh no it's fine warning (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll add a spoiler warning the beginning of the episode good good okay yeah in case anyone's uncomfortable but um, yeah, I think that's interesting. I looked up laws about assisted suicide and that kind of stuff. And I'm fascinated with like, again, like just that big system way is like, why do we as humans innately value? I think what it comes down to is that we innately value life. And I think that's beautiful. Like we innately value procreation and being here and food sources. And like, we have things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs because as a human population, we're fascinated by ourselves and figuring out like how to stay alive like any other humans or animals would you know like um my partner and I we've been watching a lot of stuff on like cosmos or like like different animal lives and that kind of stuff like every those are some basic things is that you want to survive we have that too but we have like multiple levels of how we think about that and so I'm fascinated with why does my specific body and my specific brain want to hurt itself like I've hit my head in a panic attack before I physically hit my head on a door. And I think I got myself a concussion because the next couple of days I had um, a headache. And it's like, why is that okay in my brain? And if, if the goal is to survive and like, why do I want to physically hurt myself? I think in so, I've spent so much time thinking about this kind of stuff. I think it's like, would be maybe the amygdala with fight, flight or freeze responses of survival, you know, like, that basic stuff if i'm having a panic attack it means my body's on full-fledged anxiety mode i'm in survival mode like in my being you know like i get so hard panic attacks that um sometimes my body forgets to breathe and my face goes numb because i'm i'm not breathing and that's like a basic function that got shut off because of panic and because of just like freaking out and for no good reason also like that's something i think about too is like i'm a very privileged person in life like why am i dealing with the shit and that builds more guilt right which builds more anxiety which builds more depression etc so i'm fascinated with that kind of stuff and i think it's in some ways i think my maybe what that is uh, uh, perhaps is my fight flight or freeze sees that my head is the issue and so it wants to destroy my head maybe in a physical way to be so good at survival that it's destroying the thing that's causing the problem but it's also me which i think is fascinating so anyways long story short i think i'm going to be saying that the entire time we talk (laughs) um benoit for your question i think that's part of why i'm just innately interested in philosophy is because i can't help but think about these things because i deal with these things so i have to find an answer i have to find a solution i have to understand it so that i can operate and i think a lot of mental health is figuring out how to operate like in a very practical way when i'm having a panic attack my brain isn't telling, I'm, I'm, I literally forget to breathe and I have to remind myself deep breaths so that I can physically get my body quote unquote back online so that I can breathe and function again. I think that goes into some larger topics of, I know I wrote this down in the pre-interview question for you guys of productivity, capitalism, all that kind of stuff. I think there's, like we've said, spectrums. I'm fascinated with spectrums because I see patterns in it and i think everybody who's interested probably in that kind of stuff sees patterns of it and just has to like you can't help but explore it so like with 
functionality of physical mental health, you also might see in a spectrum of going bigger in terms of productivity and how we operate in a capitalistic society. And like, I feel the best, I think, when I'm making stuff. And I don't know if that's nature versus nurture, (laughs) nurture being a capitalistic productivity society. I feel guilty when I'm not making stuff. Even on the weekend, I had showed you guys, I'll send you a million pictures so that, but on the past weekend or so, I couldn't help myself, but just make stuff. Like I felt weird if I didn't, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I just made things. And now this is, I want to make a tiny business to test sales on another thing. But like, I don't know if that's me or if it's mental health mixed with a capitalistic society of feeling only worthy when I produce things or what. I think we also feel that going, I think our generation is interested for many reasons of mental health, calming down, breathing, meditation, all that kind of stuff, spirituality, because we now have the technology to be working 24 seven, our bosses and us, we can communicate with our bosses through text message, 24 seven emails. Um, the school I work at has a policy where you don't send emails on the weekends, which I think is cool, but that had to be enacted because it got abused. So I think we're in a, in a part where it's like, we have so much access to ourselves and to others through social media, through all of this, that we have to put in breaks and put in balances and make it okay again to be calm and figure that out. And I, I'm curious as to if that is a, like we ran full force as a society with capitalism, productivity, all that jazz. And now we're like, whoa, we're, we're all, we're all depressed. We're all suicidal. We're all figuring this stuff out. Let's calm down. But yet yeah, uh, philosophy, I think I can't help, but be curious. Yeah. I think as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, the pendulum generally swings back and forth and it feels like we've been swinging the capitalism ball for years and years and years like for as long as i can remember decades before that and almost now especially with 2020 as what it's been of everyone really having to get still not be able to leave their house like look within i think a lot of those ideas are coming to light like i personally have talked to numerous people that have said oh i recognized my workaholism for the first time in the world or in the first time in my life because like when you have that much free time you're able to kind of look within and realize that you're finding a lot of your value within the doing. That's something that I've worked on a lot in therapy and with my coach is our value is within being rather than doing. And that almost comes to a funny full circle of just be books, of just be, you know, (laughs) apples in hand. But kind of on that note with finding your being, you said that there were two coping strategies that Arthur the Apple tried using and then didn't, it didn't work out. So A, can you give us a sneak peek to what that coping strategy to find being was? And then even in your personal life, what are some coping strategies that you navigate the complexities of mental health with? Okay, so the coping skills that Albert Apple goes through, the first one is exercise. And it doesn't work. He's still really sad. Uh, The second one that he tries (laughs) is talking with friends. He tries it. It doesn't work. He's really sad still. And then he, it goes through, uh, as any story arc would, it goes to the bottom, right? And he's like alone uh, at a park, really sad and like, oh, like da da da. And then Miss um, Margaret comes, and this is at the top of the story arc as it's as it's coming back around. Miss Margaret character, um, older woman comes by, and she's like, 
uh, just me. I'll teach you how to deep breathe, and this is what works for me. And that's the third coping skill is deep breathing. And spoiler alert, that's one of my coping skills <laughs> that does work for me. And that helps him to kind of shed. And uh, we, we pictureize that Rebecca did a lovely job at showing that in a kid-friendly way of an apple decaying. Um, and it's like literally it sheds off and he becomes a seed and then becomes a tree through deep breathing. For my coping skills, like I said, one of them is deep breathing. Because when I get in panicky states, I my face does sometimes go numb and like my fingers might go like I my body gets kind of numb and that freaks me out and usually or used to send me into more of a panic because I'd be like, oh, my body doesn't even work. <laughs> like even worse. But I've learned, you know, my mom's really my mom has panic attacks too. My sister does, my grandpa does which I didn't know about until I was in the throes of mental health. And I called my sister and she said, Perry, you're having a panic attack. I get them. Mom gets them. Grandpa gets them. And I was in my head. I was like, I was in a panic attack in my head. I was like, why was, why is this the first time I'm hearing about this? That's again, part of why I want to make mental health more available to talk about. Cause it's like, you can't function if you don't have information. So, and again, I think mental health is a lot about just functioning in whatever you need to function through. So that was like, uh, that's something I do deep breathing. My mom has talked with me through quite a few panic attacks. Um, and one of the memorable ones that she helped me through was, um, I was like to a point where my body wasn't quite functioning. My face was going numb. talked with me like, all right, lay down on the ground. Are you laying down? Yeah. <laughs> uh, put your hands underneath your body, underneath your butt. You know, are you doing that? Yeah, I'm doing that. Um, okay, deep, you know, she'd walk me through deep breaths and she says, notice how you are supporting yourself right now. The ground is supporting you. Your hands under you are supporting you. And like, she kind of helped me get back into my body, breathe, all that. So I do appreciate that. Um, I even, my, one of my best friends is my middle sister, Mikkel. I try to call her sometimes. I have a list of who I call. My sister gets really anxious. <laughs> about having to deal with this kind of stuff. So usually she's lower on my list, even though she's one of my best friends. And I've asked her this before. I would love if my family was willing to, if we all take um, a class together or an online training of how to get someone through a panic attack. Mm. Cause I think it's in our family to have that happen. And I would love for my support system to be able to support me, but I don't want to require that of them. And I also like, no, I don't want to make my sister anxious, <laughs> but she's the person I want to call when I'm in these situations. Um, I've had that before where, so that's another coping skill, talking with friends, I guess, um, and calling with my family members. Um, I've been on, you know, walking home and like over a bridge and again, warning, I guess. Um, but, you know, just kind of like really sad and like depressed and like just considering like, what would it feel like to go off this? Like it was in a cold, I was like, it'd be really cold. And I usually think when I'm in those kinds of thoughts, I'm like, if it isn't successful, it doesn't seem worth it because then it's just going to be cold. Then I have to deal with all the implications of having to have tried to commit suicide. And it's like, I don't want to put my family through that, you know, all this stuff. Um, so there's a lot of interesting like guilt associated with that for me as well, that actually assists me in not doing stuff and not harming myself because I feel too guilty about it. So I think again, guilt, I've talked about that before. I think guilt helps me in a lot of ways which is why it's hard to let go of it, even though it serves me wrong, but serves me well. So I think that's fascinating emotions, having multiple side notes. There's so many side notes. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> side, no side notes are good. Always interesting. Yeah. Um, 
anyways, that's another coping skill. I've had some really weird, bad panic attacks with friends before. And after, after a really bad one, I made a list on my phone in my notes section. I have an iPhone, so it has the notes. I made a list of if I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z, here's a list of things you can do to help me. And so that's a practical thing I did. I said, like, first, remind me to breathe, please. Second, um, because I'm probably not doing that, right? Um, second, here's a list of people you can call to get more help for me or to put me on the phone with. And I put my mom first, I think um, my dad, then my brother-in-law, because he's more comfortable with this kind of stuff than my sister, then my sister, and then like two two more, I think it was like my other sister and her husband. So like, these are the people, please call. And then I sent that um, to probably like 10 of the closest friends that I imagined my subconscious would allow me to have a panic attack with if that makes sense like sometimes you guys I have stories for you (laughs) about mental health but um one like I've had it where I'm in public and I don't get to a full-fledged panic attack because the override of me knowing this is socially not okay right now overrode the panic attack so I'm like it's so it'd be socially weird and wrong if I had a panic attack right now in public (laughs) So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait. And then I freaked out the whole Uber ride until I got home. Then I had my panic attack because I was like, my body was like, like freaking out. I was crying that whole time, but I like didn't freak out fully. I think that's fascinating too. But anyways, that to me tells me I probably, I only will have a panic attack. My subconscious will allow me to have a panic attack with these friends that I'm close to that I'm willing to be really vulnerable with. I can shut down with. Um, and that I know I'm safe with them. They'll hold, they'll take care of me, my physical, even if I can't, I'm not going to be taken advantage of in like psychological, any kind of ways. Right. So that I sent that like note to all of those friends and said, Hey, I had a really weird, bad experience this weekend with a panic attack. Here's like, I'm just sending, can you please save this in your phone so that if it happens and a lot of them were like really sweet, they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Like, yes, I just saved it. And like some of them even screenshotted it and send it back. Look, it's saved, you know, <laughs> and I was like, it was so nice and so sweet. So I asked them to save it with my contacts or save it in their notes. That's a practical thing that I did. And that I think is really helpful for me and knowing that I, it's also something where it's like, I'm a big believer in responsibility too. If it's like, People, you can be vulnerable, but also know where your shit ends and someone else's stuff starts. Mm. So it's like, that's something I can do to take care of myself and make it easier for my friends to take care of me is saying like, hey, I might have this. Here's what you can do to help me. I think that's a super thoughtful and kind way. If anybody listening has panic attacks a lot and feels comfortable with doing something like that, it helps your friends to help you. And that's, that's a good loving thing to do in my mind. Journaling is another one, songwriting, coping skills, getting it out of your head. Nice. Yeah, definitely all super practical and appreciate you sharing about those specific stories. I think when you mentioned the one instance that you were referring to of when you kind of press the anxiety attack down, that almost to me signifies like the guilt that you mentioned before, like almost like guilt as a driver. And I'd like to go into this a little deeper because I think it's definitely fascinating, the relationship of guilt and shame almost. We might have talked about it on our podcast before, but it's a Brene Brown idea that guilt is around actions and shame is around identity. So it seems like you've thought a lot about this guilt as a motivation. And I personally agree, like, I know that I'm gonna feel guilty if I eat an entire pizza or like I sleep through whatever I have to do that day. Like 
kind of having that guilt as a motivator. It's like a you don't want to feel the guilt kind of thing or the guilt makes you act in a certain way. So I think there's definitely value and reward as you kind of pointed out in using guilt to kind of like almost it's like bumper of- lanes. You know what I mean? Like when you're bowling or whatever, they're like the lanes to like make decisions through. But she says when it gets harmful is when it becomes associated to an identity with it, which then it becomes shame. Like I am a untruthful person or something like that when you associate that to your identity rather than a specific action so i'm curious kind of just to unfold your ideas around guilt shame and just like that whole because i think it's a really interesting perspective that underlines a lot of things like everyone wants to say oh everyone's super positive or super negative like it's a complexity of the human emotion that i don't think gets explored enough and it's clear that you've thought a lot about this kind of thing. So I'm curious to see where this goes. Just real quick to echo Aiden's question and what he said. So uh, just to add on to that, I think this is a approach that I have. I was talking with Aiden a while back and I, I view all emotions as like valid because I don't think there is such thing as a bad emotion. But I do think there is a difference between productive emotions and un- unproductive emotions. But I think all emotions are valid. And I just always share that because you were talking about when you cross a bridge, you have another isolated suicidal ideations or thought and you contemplate about what it would be like for it to jump off the bridge. You talk about, oh, it's the coldness of the water. It would really suck thick if you didn't succeed and you would have to now you're just drenched in all these. It's almost like you when you have an irrational impulse such as jumping off the bridge for no reason. And then you have all these rationalized ideas to cope with your irrational impulse. Um, but I just wanted to share in terms of what Brenna Brown talked about, like guilt is a productive emotion. In your instance, in Aiden's instance, it's about, oh, I don't want to eat a whole slice of pizza. But shame is an unproductive emotion because it it's associated with your identity. It makes you feel shitty. It identifies you as X, Y, or Z. So I do want to share that with the audience. And what you talked about is that like there are no such thing as bad feelings or bad emotions, but maybe there are instances of productive or unproductive emotions. Interesting. I dig this conversation and I am grateful <laughs> to you. Both. This is fun. Um, yes. So many thoughts are popping up. I think in terms of productive, that's an interesting one because I get in my own way a lot and then it spirals and uh, Dang, I should show you guys um, a picture. That's no intel of my brain. Trying to write this down to not forget. Cycle of thoughts slash suicide. Okay, so I'm also interested in systems because I think it's a way for me to visualize something that's happening that's intangible. So like I've made and writing and communications fascinating to me because I have so many thoughts that happen too fast. So getting it out and being able to process it slower helps. So I think there's cycles that happen with thoughts that are unproductive. Like I have, there's this one I'm thinking about that I'll send you guys. Um, I wrote an article on her campus when I was in college about it. For me, I have to do tasks. I get overwhelmed with them. So I write a list. I see all of the tasks that I have to do. My brain starts thinking about these projects and gets excited because I can spin out really quick each task, what it could be. So just be, I have my brain's idea of what it could be. Like I want it to be a full mental health. I want, I would love it to be 
something to be as big as SpongeBob, but about mental health. I think that'd be awesome for kids. I wish I had something like that. So my ideas are span with that. Empower Creative Agency, my other business. My ideas are really big. So when I look at my to-do list or I think about my projects, it's all of these competing really giant spin-out thoughts that I'm excited about. It's a good thing, right? That's maybe productive. But then it turns to overwhelmed because it's too much happening at once. Sometimes, you know, like, I don't know if you guys experience it, but sometimes in those sentence instances, sometimes you actually get a physical headache because you're just like, and then like almost like a machine that's just overworking and you're like fuck this like ah, why am I doing this to myself so then it gets to overwhelmed which then for me gets to anxiety which I think I've learned to use suicidal thoughts to help calm anxiety which is weird but I think that's what's happened in the past that I over time practiced and it got more ingrained as a pattern in my head so it's like my brain quickly goes to suicidal thoughts if I'm anxious as a way to think all or nothing about how to how to help my anxious thoughts and overwhelmed thoughts and the headache that I'm feeling. So it's, it's pretty extreme, but it gets there. And then I feel guilty for having suicidal thoughts. And I feel unproductive because I'm in this mental health state that I'm uncomfortable with. And thinking about suicidal thoughts when I have a to-do list to do and things to complete and the time to complete them. And then that adds more guilt. The guilt then makes me think more about how unproductive I'm being and that I'm wasting time. And then that adds more guilt, which makes me more overwhelmed, which adds to suicidal thoughts, which makes me more guilt. And then I'm in, I'm stuck in a loop. It's a funny paradox because I catch myself in this all the time. It's like if you didn't make the to-do list to begin with, which in itself is a good thing, the whole loop wouldn't have started. You know what I mean? So it's a funny paradox of being productive and trying to put all of these amazing things into the world and then seeing them all together you know, you drink too much coffee at 9 a.m. and then compile your to-do list and then it's 9.30 and you're like, wow, I have a hundred things to do and then cue all of those feelings. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the breathing. One thing that I've found, breathing is definitely a fundamental part. I've started doing yoga a lot more, which has been very contrary to my approach to just health in general. Usually I was big on like, oh, just run the inner demons out, you know, just like put all of the exercise out to like exercise so I'm out of breath. But yoga has really like, been an opposite side of that and allowed me to like work through just through the breath and more like down tempo kind of things. But another empowering, just quick flip of, uh, I'm reading a book by Jay Shetty called think like a monk. And the idea is to have basically to flip the ethos or the context of the specific thought. So instead of saying I'm overwhelmed because I see so many things on my to-do list, it's I'm organized and slowly working through these things, you know, and it sounds like a very just easy reframe, but I've tried it a few times of like, even just, I think you would resonate it with, with it because like you clearly are like a doer and like probably checking the boxes, the little dopamine hit of checking the things, but sometimes <laughs> I'll categorize my lists into smaller lists. You know what I mean? So I'll have like a podcast list and then it's the things I have to do for the podcast and then another list. So you try and run through all of those. So it's, I guess, creating more order there's like control tendencies and all that kind of stuff that enter that conversation. But I think when I do get overwhelmed, I try and just create structure. And that's why, you know, I value my morning routine so much is because if I miss my meditation or my yoga practice or any of those number of things, it just feels like I'm out of order in some senses. And I think when I feel overwhelmed, structure is the thing that kind of helps. And I guess that's kind of a long-winded general coping strategy, but I'm curious for your thoughts around those. I think the to-do list is an interesting one, and it goes back to my existential 
anxiety and dread, <laughs> mm-hmm. I see the to-do list and in, and I think that's a beautiful way to reframe and that's something I've learned through therapy too is like good self-talk, positive self-talk versus negative ones. And it's it's cool to see as I'm working with um, teenagers and middle schoolers through mm-hmm. my current job as an entrepreneurship teacher, I'm coaching my kids through that too, my students, especially the middle schoolers who are still learning how to deal with their emotions. They're like 11 and 12 years old and their homework. Hormones are crazy. Their brains are like off the charts for themselves, you know. But that's an interesting one is like teaching them that is also reminding me, oh, I, I have to do this too. I have to practice that too. And I do... When I see a giant to-do list and my brain goes to see all of this crazy stuff, I'm like, I get overwhelmed um, and think about the existential piece of there's too much to do, it's all or nothing thinking, it's so much work to even just do this thing, I'm excited, but I'm thinking, so it's like just overabundance. In terms of coping skills like you're talking about, I've learned the, I'm a part of this women's entrepreneurship group, and she told a part of it too, Michelle Silberman, who I think we introduced together. They're all part of that. Alexa, the one woman I had mentioned, she's a part of that too. They talk, they talk a decent amount of spirituality and coping skills with these different things of being someone who operates like I'm sure all of us do. Some of it is stepping into your body again instead mm-hmm. of trying to bypass your body to get stuff done, which we can't physically do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of that I've learned from them also is morning routines. I'm practicing that and I go in and out of it. When I was younger, I used to like run a mile at 5 a.m. in the morning. I don't really feel safe to do that right now. That's where I lived as a kid growing up with my family. See, but that stuff annoys me. Even thinking about that is like, oh, like, why do we have to do, why do we yeah. have to so hard to make morning routines and so I have to like I think um, a lot of people growing up too would say I'm, I'm one of the most positive people they know but as you guys probably know too it's not really a choice you have to do it because the alternative is being a sad sack of <laughs> depression <laughs> so it's like you really have to work hard at being happy so even thinking about this is like mm-hmm. frustrating yeah I hear you yeah I think I just wanna I think it's important regarding the specific topics we're talking about since it's about suicidal and mental health and depressions and everything in between i do want to be cautious and like say it for the listeners that like all the coping mechanisms that we're alluding to here are specific to our own and they might not be applicable or relevant or even useful for some people out there so i think it and all these things are like we talk about routines aside we also talk about being coached we talk about coaching we talk about therapy so i think for people who's interested there's a lot of resource out there and we'll obviously link everything into the episode but it is important to consult with your healthcare professionals or mental health professionals because these are just our personal coping skills that we're discussing uh, but yeah i think what aiden was alluding to in terms of think like a monk by jay shetty that reframe, I think if you look at a deeper and more macro level, it's like growth mindset, right? So I'm sure you know what growth mindset is by Carl Dweck. And I think all three of us have that growth mindset embedded in us, driven by our inheriting curiosity, driven by our constant actions and pursuit of things to learn more. That's growth mindset. But another attributing component to growth mindset is the reframe. So for example, Aiden gave the example of, oh, I have 100 things on my to-do list instead of being dreaded and like, oh, why do I have so many things? He reframes it as, oh, I'm grateful for the opportunities and this is a long process that's being ventured into. 
But if you look at growth mindset, you can reframe everything. So for example, if you got a fourth place on your class ranking for an exam, for example, I know most schools in the US don't rank that, but in Asia, it's a common practice. Instead of saying that, oh, I'm dumb, I'm whatever, because I'm in fourth place, I didn't get first place, a growth mindset lens to reframe it as would be, oh, I'm fourth place. So there's three more places for me to step into and grow into. And there's a lot more for me to improve upon. That's a growth mindset. But the thing about these practices is I think it's easier for Aiden and myself because we don't really have those very depressive and anxious uh, cycles, as you alluded to, that you experience because I've haven't dealt with suicidal ideations in a very, very long time. I might have had dealt with one or two when I was younger, as some people do. Um, so I definitely do want to be cautious in terms of sharing because I think your reality and the narrative, the narrations that you deal with is very different from mine. And, and I think in this case, diabolically different than what I'm dealing with. And the thing about reframing and growth mindset, it's a constant practice. It's not like, oh, I grew into a... I cultivated growth mindset. It has become mine. Now I have growth mindset for the rest of my life. I think that's false. I think you could definitely lose your growth mindset and you have to continuously practice habitually so that you're, you always have that constant reframe of mindset. So I think it's very important to share that, you know, given the context we're, we're discussing here. And I think what you mentioned kind of speaks to the spectrum that we're all on. Like everyone has mental health challenges in some capacity. It just looks in, it looks like different forms and different shapes and colors and perspectives across the board. And that speaks to your just be books movement is it's like the effort to have the conversations, you know, like, I mean, put it on a billboard. We're not doctors nor medical professionals yet. I guess you're kind of on the path to be that. But I think it's having the conversations around those things are bringing those ideas to light rather than being swept under the rug like they have been for so long. Yeah. And what you're bringing up, Benoit, too, about um, practicing growth mindset and aid in what you're talking about reframing, according to current science, what is actually happening in our brain, right, is that like we have pathways that are being built, neuro pathways of what we practice, even riding a bike, you have to practice that. And that's like your brain connecting with your physical body and uh, all that stuff. It's getting ingrained and being walked on more often. I've heard a couple different examples of this. One is that there's like a field and you see one path that's a little bit more beaten down and one that's not, you probably are gonna go down the path. You're not gonna try and make a whole nother path because it's just easier to get across. You can see it and you're gonna go. That's what's happening in our brain. If there's like, I deal with anxiety and I have the option of doing yoga, which I wanna do more often, but I just like don't do it as often or doing a suicidal thought as a coping skill. Eventually I'll, I'll be on this end, but I'm currently still working out of suicidal thoughts. So it's like my brain easily faster goes, it's more efficient to just go down that line of coping skill. So it takes more effort to go onto the happier coping skill because I have to still build that path. Um, I've heard that example, which was helpful for my visual understanding. Another one would be you're riding your bike and there's a groove in the mud or a groove in the dirt. You're riding your bike and then pff, you slip into the groove and your bike wants to keep going on the groove. It's because it's just easier. Like it's sliding down into that and you go across, it's, gets, it's harder to get back out of that groove and bike on the solid ground. So I thought those were interesting ones to think about for visual learners. That's what's happening in our brain too. It's like the neural pathway has been strengthened by doing it so many times. So that's why you choose a coping skill that you're used to, whether it's good or not. 
versus like the reframing it's hard that's partly why it's so hard to get yourself out of a rut or get yourself out of a depressive state is because it's more work to get out of it than to stay in it (laughs) even though it breeds itself more you know so there's at least a current science of what i've learned in classes and stuff again not a mental health professional just people who are curious and learning about it i think all of us and Benoit, you are becoming a mental health professional, so thank you to your service for that. But yeah, I think that's fascinating. You alluded to uh, stoicism very briefly in the earlier conversations, and you talked about you have a very robust support system to support you through your panic attacks and your mental health incidences that most people don't have. And I think there wouldn't be you, Paris, as a person and as multi-potentialite as you are as a human being without your parents so so i do want to go into that for a bit but in terms of i think uh, stoicism i think everything you've talked about your existential struggles and thought processes i think to a certain degree could be answered through stoicism because i was introduced to stoicism through ryan holiday the author of many books i read his book ego is the enemy and his other book stillness is the key But I think if you look at Stoicism, obviously there's a lot of amazing practices, but I view Stoicism as acceptance of suffering. This might be a hot topic that we don't have enough data for, but I would argue very prominent Stoics back in the days and a lot of great philosopher thinkers, I don't think they had to deal with the same level of mental health struggles that we dealt with. And I don't think they had to deal with the same level of existential questioning that we had to deal with because of the lack of access to information back then. And I think the society as a whole, even Stoics, had to deal with different types and in some sense less existential crisis than humans do now because we have less survival danger. Like the most collective issues have been solved to us now. So all of us are forced to be introspective and a lot of mental health things are being surfaced. But back then, I don't think it's the same level of magnitude or gravity. Nonetheless, I think the Stoic principle or the first principles I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, I think the first principles of Stoicism is accepted suffering. They're Stoic about their sufferings because one of the main teachings of Stoicism is suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable sufferings that you have to deal with that's part of the deal. It's like buy one, get one free packaging deal. By being alive in this world, it's part of the deal that you will have these attached sufferings come with it. And then they find ways to navigate or maneuver through their lives, um, which sounds like there's a lot of areas of your life that are still struggling. Like, why do you have to deal with my personal humanity of being a human? Why do I have to deal with morning routines? Why do I have to deal with these suicidal ideations where not everyone has to? So I think um, that comes to my mind. And obviously, feel free to respond to any a shape or form but after that i do want to uh, talk about your family and there is a particular story i'm interested to ask about awesome well so many things come to mind um I'll, I'll say a few things here one is maslow's hierarchy of needs classic uh, but in terms of like thinking did people farther back in history did they have to deal with the same amount of stuff i think the internet makes things fascinating and that we have so much information we get I get overwhelmed and avoid things. I think also we need clear information so that we can function. If we don't function, we shut down. And then mental health is difficult to maintain. Uh, So I think that's some of it. Also, I wonder in the time of Stoicism if um, religion was more mainstream. And so it's like you had more clear answers, even if it wasn't the truth or whatever. So that comes to mind too. 
also in terms I've been fascinated to think about, is there a new triangle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that has to do with the digital age and digital living? Another thing to think about, or just another level of digital stuff within that idea. I know some people don't agree with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I just think it's an interesting base to talk off of. What was the other thing that you had talked about? There's so many things. Well, could we run down that? I'm definitely curious on what a Maslow's hierarchy in the digital age would look like, because the way I'm thinking about it, at least comparative to stoicism, like more people just have those bottom levels checked off, more people have shelter, more people have safety. So it's almost like as a society, we're trending upwards across the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I think that combined with the accessibility of the internet could be leading to these people seeking more or just looking for more answers because at a base were, you know, more answered combined with the accessibility of the internet. But when you say kind of like rewiring it a little bit towards the modern age, towards the science age, like what elements about it? Another thing for you guys, this is one of the annoying things for me is that when I listen to podcasts, there's so many new things and I'm like, I don't have time to listen to all this new material <laughs> to suggest. So I'm going to suggest something. <laughs> Chris Dancy is an interesting human. He's like, uh, I guess, one of the most connected men in the world in terms of technology. Like, I think if I remember right, he has something over 300. It was either over 100 or 300 devices connected to him digitally at one time in the oh, sense oh. his house is decked out he has like a fitbit or an apple watch eyeglasses that are like connected and he's he says our fourth i think it was like our fourth brain is technology so in the sense that we had our amygdala then we built to the outer layer then now we have a prefrontal cortex as humans the fourth like the now outer layer is technology he argues um to go into the internet of things fully and like when you have full internet you don't see internet you are internet he's wild Whoa. he's He's wild. Another person I reached out to on LinkedIn that I got to talk to, we didn't talk in depth. So I think that's something interesting to think about in terms of like, what does it look like if we full-fledged are an internet society and are totally accessible? That also means then in a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, triangle or layers, we would need probably Wi-Fi in the bottom of that or close to the bottom mm. because it's like you can't participate in society mm. without those things. However, if you think about um, our society... This goes into a totally different topic of Shoshana Zuboff's democracy and surveillance capitalism that I wrote down in terms of big data and privacy rights. If we are in a society that totally adopts technology, then what do you do with people that don't want to adopt it like or give away their rights? Like, I don't want to give away my all my rights. That's part of why I stopped going on Snapchat, because I actually read through the terms and conditions. And like for any of that kind of stuff, it just sucks. Like... You know, like you're like, oh, I don't even understand this and I don't want them to have access. I don't want people listening to me while I'm not on the app or like different things. I don't remember what it was, but I just remember being uncomfortable and being like, like, I'm not so into it that I have to have it and give up my rights. But that's something right now where it's, I think Target is a company, at least it was a couple years ago, where you only could apply online. But then what do you have, what do you have happen with a society that has to operate in capitalism, has to operate with food being purchased by money? And the jobs can only be accessible by online. Well, of course, you have to have online, at least with libraries, uh, having free access to Wi-Fi. But now if we have the COVID era, I was talking about this with my coworkers the other day. They were saying, is there going to be such a thing as a snow day anymore? And I was like, interesting. Well, that depends. Is Wi-Fi a human right? Can you get access to education from home? 
if you have shitty Wi-Fi, no, you know, then then snow days have to be a thing because you have to have equal access. I'm also teaching at a private school, which I think is fascinating to think about in terms of we are operating during COVID, but a lot of public schools are suffering right now. I think that's something else is human rights, education as a human right, all that stuff. But in terms of Wi-Fi um, and technology, that would definitely, as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it would be adjusted to add technological stuff. If we're all shifting up to a higher level, then it means that we have more options of answers versus in the past, we got to pick out of less options of answers. So if we're like, what is the world? Or like, why am I here? I asked that as a kid. Like, I was probably a weirdo kid. I'd ask my mom, isn't it weird that we don't, I come from you, but we don't have the same thoughts. (laughs) She'd just be like, oh my God, you're such a weirdo. But I think most kids think about those things. So that's something where it's like we have more answers. If religion is the only thing, then you say God chose you to be here. Like, da 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 And that's, I know, I talked with you guys before. My dad used to be a pastor. I have, I have so many questions as a person because um, of how I grew up with my dad being a pastor, but he kind of fell out of religion and shared his ex- existential wonderings with me when I was younger. So that's something there. But yeah, I think we have less, we have so many answers and so many options as a society because of the internet. And because of the digital age, and because we have access to more often, it's like more of a resource allocation problem. We all have enough food to feed everyone. We have enough water to do all that. We have enough energy. We have enough money. We have enough resources. It's an allocation problem, which would be then, to me, a product design problem and a systems problem. And... But yes, I think that's, uh, I think we have more options. And when I have too many options, you go, there's like a real thing called decision fatigue. I think we're all like experiencing decision fatigue and we shut down and then you can't function. We're back to a mental health society (laughs) that it's like having challenges with mental health and functioning. Yeah. We would definitely like to move towards the religion kind of ideas that you just brought up because I think that's definitely interesting and worth talking through. But to close this loop a little bit, it feels like you almost are seeing Wi-Fi as like a middle part of the hierarchy. Like once you have safety and security, Wi-Fi is almost needed for those higher levels of like discovering more about yourself and the world that we live in. But then also at the same time, the internet provides decision fatigue for days. You go say, I have a cough, and then you read a WebMD article, and you're like, shit, I have cancer now. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, there's just so many articles out there. I mean, which is a blessing on one side, so many different perspectives to read through. But I think the anecdote of one can now be positively lead you down a road of seeing what worked for that person might work for you, but then also seeing their perspective might not always relate to your own. You know, but I think the dialogue around those stories is definitely valuable. Um, So the idea of I would like to close the loop with a quick question on this is, do you think Wi-Fi is a human right going into the next decade? Uh, Probably. I think if we're going towards this path. Yeah, I think it. But that it's interesting to ask that question also makes me think about the practicality of like and we're at a private school there. I, I feel like there's enough funds to make it happen. But that means that like you'd have to have enough money and you'd have to work with the students and families during the summers to like implement a decent Wi-Fi system at their house and stuff. Comcast is doing something cool right now. They have, I don't remember what it's called, but they're doing something where they're putting up little Wi-Fi places where students can come to work and have good Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi. So they're making it accessible. Um, They're doing some campaign around that. But I think companies are 
starting to do that kind of stuff as a social impact move in good ways. But yeah, I think I think to operate in the society, it's way easier with Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, before we move on, I just want to say that I think what sets our generation apart from all the generations and eons and millennials before we did is if you look at millennials, right? Uh, millennials coined as millennials because a new millennium, but also we are literally uh, defined as the era of information or the generation of informations, ergo millennials. And if you look at all the tribal days and humans from 10, 15, 20, 000, 50, whatever thousand years ago, every new generation has shown improvement. It has to be for us to be collectively evolved into current states. But I think they're all marginal. And I think ever since the millennials, the humans as a collective society experience exponential growth. That's when the law of singularity and all these things uh, came forth is that we are at a point where all the principles, all the laws and a lot of the truth that were true back then are no longer applicable to us, which is probably the reason why you and your person, Scott, briefly talked about digital age and massacre hierarchy. Should we reframe it? Should we improve upon it? Because what was true back then is no longer applicable, not just because however years later, but because we've entered a new era entirely that the previous humans had never experienced, period, um, which is the reason why I call millennials to begin with. Um, so I think that's definitely a lot of interesting things that there's no way in hell we could even touch on the even cusp of that during this podcast. But I think you definitely do bring up a lot of interesting discussion points down the road. And I think that would be a perfect segue into our next question. And even this conversation highlights it really beautifully the type of person you are is i think you embody every virtues and ethos and principles that we embody as a podcast the curiosity right to discover more and to me as you talked about many of your curiosity is tied to existential or related to humanity your specific humanity aspects and that is also derived from your dad because you talked about your dad was a pastor who is presumably extremely religious to become a pastor full-time and he experienced some crisis or maybe he just had a lot of questions that he could no longer answer through the bible or other source of a religion and he shared those questions with you which incited a whole new host of curiosity of your own uh, but i would love to hear about the specific conversation that you had once he realized his belief system is no longer adequate to support his vocation as a pastor and how that manifested in terms of his life, but also the influence it had over yours. Uh, because I think a lot of topics that we talked about, mental health aside, is also like the genesis of humans, the meanings, the purpose, like why do we live? And I think Stoicism, and along with other many-ism, is an attempt to, I guess, rectify or help with those questionings. So with my dad, both my parents are religious, and they come from Christianity, I'll set it up with uh, how I think my mom had said this is the difference between how they grew up in religion. My dad, his family's belief was don't do anything until God tells you to do it. And my mom's growing up hood with religion was do what you want to do and need to do. And if God has a issue with it, he'll steer you in a different direction. So you can see that there's like a stagnant waiting ominous feeling and then a go forth live your life 
God's on your side. You know, it's like a different kind of like feeling. One is more moving, one is more stagnant. And that is, I think, how my mom broke it up like that. And when my parents also, they're awesome. Like they have these kind of conversations with us and stuff. I think that's cool. I'm probably the one that asks them most of these kind of questions out of the three of us girls. I'm the youngest out of three, but they're down to talk about this stuff. So they're very existentially minded, which I appreciate. So that's an interesting one. My mom also, when you think about, when you ask her about religion, it's pretty light, pretty quick, I guess. Um, she, she would say, well, the world is so beautiful. Our bodies work and they're wildly intricate mechanisms. How could someone not have made that? And she says, you know, we see sunsets and we feel joy and beauty from it. How could someone not have given that to us? You know, she's like, it's so beautiful. Why, why else would we need for beauty, like, but to enjoy it? And when I get depressed or talk with her about that stuff, sometimes she said to me in the past, it's almost, she, she didn't mean it in a harsh way, but she said, it's almost an insult to not want this life. She's like, it's so beautiful, and you're insulting the, a, a creator by not wanting it and not enjoying what's given there, and not necessarily also just an insult, but also it's a gift. Enjoy it. Like, it doesn't have to be so heavy all the time, which I'm, I'm a pretty heavy person. And she's like, it doesn't have to be heavy all the time. Just enjoy it. It's beautiful. Look around you. Enjoy it. You know, she's like pretty simple about it. I ask about those kinds of things. I'm like, even as an adult, I'll look at my dad's hand, look at my hand. My hand is exactly like my dad's, but smaller. And I think that's cool and weird. (laughs) And my mom's hand and mine looks different, but it's about the same size. But my middle sister's hands look almost exactly like my sister's hands. And I think that's so cool. And my big toe is like my dad's, but my, all the rest of my toes are like my mom's. And I think that's so weird. (laughs) That's so cool. Again, my top teeth are like my dad's. My bottom teeth are like my mom's, from what I've noticed. Beauties of being human. That's awesome. Yeah, so I think that's fascinating. Yeah, so I think it's it's cool that we are, I mean, that's a side talk. I think it's so hilarious that we are kids. (laughs) Like, that we have parents and that we're a thing. I, I get so boggled by that. We're them, but we're not them, and we have different thoughts. I get so creeped out, and it get, makes me giggle to think about how weird humans are and how weird we are, and it's cool to me, too. But anyways, my mom and dad are, are cool. We're all half of them, right? But my dad's more heavy. He's thoughtful. He's He deals with depression, and his mom, my grandma, had she remembers having suicide a suicidal thought at, like, age eight or something like that mm-hmm. on the playground or something weird. Um, so, And then my dad's dad's mom my great grandma through that side i i think had bipolar disorder and i i think i might have bipolar 2 disorder which is like a lighter version anyways so mental health is like brings down generational trauma all that stuff my dad's pretty heavy his family's pretty heavy they're pretty religious and when he was younger his whole purpose was to serve the lord that's why he was there and he thought that he needed to do that through christian rock through making that um, happen. So he had a Christian rock band and his dad was upset that he played the guitar and that he liked rock, but he's like, no dad, this is how I'm serving the Lord, you know? So it's like, that's really interesting. So my middle sister has a bunch of tattoos and was is interested in a lot of like heavy stuff. She's also interested in learning about Wiccans and that kind of stuff. So my dad now is seeing that from his dad's point of view with like don't play guitar, don't listen to rock. Now my dad's like, don't use tarot cards, don't use, you know, like all these things. So it's like getting lighter, but also still there. Uh, So that's been interesting as our generation 
But his kind of questioning with it, I remember I was either in middle school or early high school. I don't quite remember. But we were in the kitchen talking, and it was in the evening, and it was him and I talking. And he was pretty upset. Like, he was just, we were talking about this existential moment for, or it was, it felt like an existentially conversation. And him and I have that anyways, like a decent amount about aliens. He's interested in like all these different things. But he was just saying there's a lot of hypocrisy growing up. And when he was a pastor at the church that we went to, you know, he was talking with me about that where he wasn't getting paid enough as a pastor and he had three little kids. He also had a painting company on the side. So that's part of why I think I'm interested in entrepreneurship is because I saw it happen as a kid, I'm sure. So it was an open, open door for me. But he was, uh, I remember him talking where the pastor would be like, hey, you need to spend more time at the church, not at this painting company. He's like, well, I want to be here and I want to serve the Lord, but I don't get paid enough. So I have to have a painting company. And so that was some hypocrisy. And he's like, you know, like I have to feed my kids. So there's like a lot of stuff, interesting stuff there that he was confused about and different things of, you know, like his smaller moments of hypocrisy that he saw and it confused him. He believes, I think, in the basis of what religion teaches of being a good human, you know, do all these things like the Ten Commandments, all that kind of stuff. But he didn't appreciate how it was being executed by the church. He thought that part was he didn't like and was hypocritical and messy. And yeah, I think that bothered him. Like, how could how could this happen? But not this. And so it's, it's fascinating to me to think about all that kind of stuff. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.